Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and today on the broadcast, we're privileged to have Clark Forsythe. Clark is the senior counsel for the Americans United for Life. He's author of a number of books. We're going to talk about one in particular, Politics for the Greatest Good, is a book that I'm going to commend you to read. We'll have all this, as always, in the show notes. And then the book we're going to talk about mostly is this book here called The Abuse of Discretion. And these are not easy read. That doesn't mean you can't read them. It just means you have to put your thinking cap on a little bit. But The Abuse of Discretion is the inside story of Roe v. Wade. It's also been cited by the Supreme Court. I'm presuming that was amicus. Is that correct, Clark? Justice Alito cited abuse of discretion in his majority opinion, the Dobbs decision. So the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overruled Roe v. Wade, as we like to call it. Clark has been the co-counsel for parties three times at the U.S. Supreme Court. Cases argued before federal and state appellate courts as well. He's testified before Congress and state legislatures, authored 20-plus professional legal articles and bioethic issues. Do you know Joy Riley by chance? I know of her. Because she's also a Trinity uh, grad. Yes. MD who works in the bioethics fields. Wonderful lady. Yes. His articles have also been published in the Wall Street Journal, along with Newsweek, Los Angeles Times, the Public Discourse, the Washington Times, which is the paper you should subscribe to if you live there, the Federalist, the Hill, and other newspapers and magazines. He's been featured on a number of podcasts. His first book, as I mentioned, The Politics for the Greatest Good, draws lessons on political prudence from Thomas Aquinas, William Wilberforce, and Abraham Lincoln. That's an IV Press publication. He earned his BA at Allegheny College and his Juris Doctorate from Valpo University and an MA from Bioethics at Trinity International University where he is also an adjunct professor of bioethics. They live in the Chicago land area, kind of, sort of. Clark and Karen have been married 41 years. Is that right? 41, yeah. We got you beat by a little. Okay. Although, five daughters and 11 grandchildren, congratulations on the grands. Aren't they a blast? Thank you. Yes. Uh, A great stage of life. (laughs) It is a good stage of life. Well, first of all, let me ask the question for folks that don't know about you. How would you get into this business, if you will. I mean, obviously you went to law school, but was it your intent to dive in the deep end on this stuff? No, not not at the time I got into law school. I think it was the election of 1980 and it was, you know, a Carter versus Reagan versus Anderson. And someone challenged me to read Coop and Schaefer's book, What Happened to the Human Race. And that book challenged me to think about uh, bioethical and life issues differently. And then I went off to law school in 81, learned about Roe versus Wade and what a terrible decision it was. And I started volunteering for Americans United for Life. And I finally joined as a staff counsel in 85. So I've been with Americans United for Life for 38 years. I remember in college, we came to see Coop and Schaefer drove up from Nacogdoches to SMU, where they let them speak, and they were not prepared for the crowd. It was mm. very interesting. It was overflow room. But I'll never forget C. Everett Coop, and you talk about this in your second book, the definition of life. And Coop argued ostensibly that life was always biology, zoology textbooks. The moment sperm and egg became one, that was the beginning of life. And that's been confirmed more recently through scientific tests and uh, exploration by Dr. Maureen Kondek at the University of Utah has written extensively on that. 
You have to change the definition of life if you're going to do any type of abortion, I guess, without losing your mind that you've taken the life of a person. Let's talk about the abuse of discretion. And let me ask it this way. We hear Roe v. Wade was bad law. Give us, Professor Forsythe's like ABC primer on why it was bad law. Well, it was bad law because it was manufactured from the very outset as a result-oriented decision. A temporary majority of four justices in 1971 decided to sweep away the abortion laws and use this case to do so. And then they had to decide, how are we going to justify it? How are we going to write it? What are we going to say? And because they had such a result-oriented approach, they struggled for 13, 14 months as to how to justify it. They violated or ignored important issues of evidence and procedure, law of evidence, law of procedure. And the defects that led to the Dobbs decision were first sowed in the original Roe v. Wade decision and released in January 1973. And those defects, those problems, those distortions kept the Roe decision unsettled until Dobbs finally had to overrule it. I was reading through your preface on uh, the abuse of discretion, and it was striking because even though I was alive at this time and somewhat aware, I had no idea of the background of these justices, and I appreciate yeah. I mean, the, the number of appointments from FDR as well as Nixon was quite striking. Yes. And then I was thinking about the dust-up that Trump had when he announced, I'm going to put you know conservatives up. You know, th- th- I guess there was no dust-up when FDR and when uh, Nixon were no. putting— there are people on the court, but be that as it may, one interesting question I want to ask you is, by the way, in the podcast notes, we will have a link where Clark has presented a, a very recent lecture at Grove City College, and I really want to encourage you to, to walk through that because he goes through such a systematic way that we can't do in this podcast, but where he's lecturing and explaining a lot of this. But the rationale that these justices used, it had nothing to do with life. Yes. It was privacy, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, arguably, talk about forcing a round peg into a square, uh, square hole. I mean, it was just... You know, one of the tragedies of Roe versus Wade is that in order to justify that result-oriented decision, they conjured up a false history of Anglo-American medicine and law that did not protect the human being, the developing human being, the prenatal human being, and they foisted that history, that false history on the American people for 50 years. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that Dobbs accomplished is it gave the American people back our legal and cultural heritage that prenatal human life is protected going back centuries to the greatest extent possible given contemporary medical science. And as medical knowledge increased in the 19th century, the law met that increasing medical knowledge by protecting the unborn child more and more in the law. But I mean, imagine the United States versus Nixon, that case, you know, back in 1972 about Watergate. Imagine if the court back then said that the Watergate break-in, uh, you know, had nothing to do with the president. It had nothing to do with the committee to reelect the president. It had nothing to do with anybody in the administration. It was just a two-bit burglary. And then 50 years later, after all the justices have gone from 72, the court then gives a true history of what happened. Imagine that. Imagine the outrage. 
Imagine the turmoil that would cause. Well, the court gave us a false history about our Anglo-American heritage, and Mm. thankfully the Dobbs court gave us back our legal and cultural heritage. Help folks for a minute, because I know populist view of this argument is just hard to address. And you understand the three branches of government. I'm shocked at how many Americans don't understand how the branches of government are supposed to function. But when you get into these legislative issues, the court has to separate the populist noise. It seemed that Blackburn did just the opposite. He, had his, he was assigned to write this conclusion, and he had to put his finger to the wind to say, okay, it's Nixon. What are we going to do? I mean, am I wrong? And it, it just seems like you expect the justices to be cloistered in their nose with their staff reading law, mm. not worried about the populist opinion on something. Or am I deluded? <laughs> no, no. It, it, it certainly that that was certainly overshadowing the case. I, I mean, they were very influenced by the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Yeah. I mean, this was being you know, debated in the court in 70 and 71. So it was at the end of the 60s and the sexual revolution. The notion of a population explosion was overshadowing this whole case. So-called population explosion was a big political issue. Yeah. In 1970, 71, some of the justices at least felt that legalizing abortion was a good solution to the population explosion. And of course, now, you know, we're facing many countries are facing population implosion yeah. and birth rates that are below replacement level. So that was kind of a passing fad that overshadowed the case as well. There was no trial. There was no evidence in these cases that the court used. That's no striking. expert witnesses, no data. And so everything you read in the Roe v. Wade decision, which is something you don't learn in law school, is data and history and sociology that Justice Blackman kind of conjured up himself, researched himself, which violated procedure and evidence, right? and and then gives to the country in a 70-page opinion. So it was a mistake from beginning to end, a tragedy from beginning to end that just created constitutional crisis after constitutional crisis. And so because Roe was so radically unsettled in the years leading up to 2022, the court had to reconsider the Roe decision and had to rectify it in the Dobbs decision in June of 2022 by sending the issue back to the people where it always was and should have been left. Let's talk about that because, again, there's a lot of confusion in media about what the Dobbs decision really does. You're the law professor. Help me out. So we're going back to states' rights, correct? Well, I would call it federalism. You know, we have a federalist structure. We have one national or federal government, and we have 50 state governments. And since the 1600s, the abortion issue was always a colonial issue and then a state issue. And nothing gave the court the justification to become the National Abortion Control Board The court should have left it to the states. You may remember in the 1990s, the court was asked to create a national right to assisted suicide, like Mm -hmm. Roe. And the court said, we're having nothing of that. We're not going to take that issue away from the American people. It's always a state issue. We're going to leave it to the states because the states have always had the authority to deal with it. And they were smart and wise to leave the assisted suicide issue to the states and did not declare a national right to assisted suicide. And that's what they should have done with abortion in 73. 
now that Dobbs is in effect, each state gets to choose, correct? I mean, theoretically, even though Roe v. Wade has been overturned, XYZ state could say no abortion is still legal in said state. That's right. It's left up to the states. And so I don't like the public policy of California or Washington state or Oregon allowing abortion on demand. And we're going to have to battle in politics and democratic elections in those states to adopt a pro-life public policy. But half a dozen to 15 states now, maybe more, have adopted um, strong limits, mm-hmm. early gestational limits on, on abortion and have protected life. You know, we have to adopt a democratic disposition now, I would say, and, you know, genuinely address public sentiment and build pro-life public sentiment state by state. It's easy, and I don't mean that to be um, parochial, but it's easy for Christians to look at a worldview as we are in an evil culture. We're fallen creatures in a fallen world. And so one might argue, well, we really can't change this. There's you know, evil influences behind politics, and Christians shouldn't meddle in this stuff. We shouldn't be involved in it. You almost have a pacifistic approach from a lot of sectors. And then layer upon that, again, not to be unkind or indelicate, but the lack of educational awareness how important policy is, Clark. I mean, yes. I'm just struck with the people. I've been in local church ministry most of the past 43 years. Mm. I'm struck with what people don't understand. Mm. And we can vilify public schools. We can vilify whomever you want. But the average American does not understand policy is to protect life. Absolutely. To, uh, yes, keep people safe. That's the role of government. That's what the Declaration of Independence says, that the role of government is to protect human rights and to protect life, liberty. And of course, scripture teaches that as well, that the role of government is to protect life. I mean, we even see, you know, the Old Testament heroes for me, Joseph and uh, Daniel and Nehemiah and Esther, all played major roles in pagan governments. They weren't uh, public officials in the theocracy of Israel. They played major roles in pagan governments you know, Christians today don't even think they can choose between the lesser of two evils or vote against the worst in an election. But those four figures actually served in pagan, yeah. tyrannical governments, seeking to secure the greatest good possible under the constraints of those governments. It's a, it's a remarkable contrast. Oh, you're right. I have a peer from my seminary years that have voted basically pro abortion. And I got into a, a pretty heated argument on a podcast some time ago with someone I don't think it was ever used, going, you talk about engaging the culture and being humanitarian and you know embracing immigration. I go, those are great issues to debate, but A, we're not debating them. And at the same time, we're boarding, what was it, prior Roe v. Wade, 1.2 million a year? Does that sound right? Well, before Roe, it was much less, and it grew to 1.6 million in 1992, but now it's declined substantially. The abortion rate, you you talk about people who think that uh, nothing can be done. The abortion rate has actually declined by more than 50% since 1980. And while there was a high of abortions of 1.6 million in 1992, we're now below 800,000 a year, you know, maybe down to 600 or 700,000 or lower. The numbers are always two or three years late, but there's been a significant improvement. 
I mean, if you really think that government can't do anything, the law can't do anything, then uh, what about William Wilberforce and his campaign against the slave trade, you know, between 1780 and 1830? He persevered for 40 or 50 years against the slave Incredible. trade and then against slavery. And he was successful. Yeah. And that influenced Abraham Lincoln in the 1830s. Yes. Who early on, of course, was not of that ilk. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was basically, I would say, pro-slavery, but he wasn't against it until much later. Interesting, you bring up Wilberforce in your writings as well. You're more the student than I am, but it might have been one of Colson's books. They run together for me. But he was very sick, almost on his deathbed, and one of his partners he says to him, you know, after it was abolished, what shall we abolish next? Yes, that's right. <laughs> or, does that, that sound was, right? Yeah. That was 1833. <laughs> yes, just days. Yeah. What um, shall we abolish next? Well, boy, talk about tenacity. Now, when you finished uh, Abuse of Discretion, obviously, uh, Dobbs had not been decided. So yes. your last chapter, what will happen on the day after Roe, were you prophetic? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was anticipating how it might happen. I claim no prophecy, but but it was the goal. You. It, it was the goal we were. It was the goal we were looking for, and I I was trying to sketch the most reasonable path forward and the most reasonable anticipation of what what would happen. And the court in Dobbs wrote a very strong decision looking at our history, showing how no right to abortion is rooted in Anglo-American history, how, in fact, the states were protecting the, the unborn child to the greatest extent possible in the 19th century. The Dobbs decision gives us back that detailed law and culture that says we've always strived to protect the prenatal human to the greatest extent possible given contemporary medicine. I will never forget, I was a very young pastor in Texas, and a friend of mine called from the hospital, and they had discovered that her baby was uh, trisomy 18, mm. and she was having complications. And I went to the hospital, and I got off the floor of this, this particular hospital, and to the right was the neonatal clinic, and to the left was the women's clinic. Mm. And I stood there with my mouth over my, you know, hand over my mouth going, my Lord, you can kill a child if you go left and you try to save a child going right. I didn't have the courage I wish I had as a 28-some-year-old kid to ask the doctors, do you work in the same surgical center? Mm. You know, over here, you're aborting children. Over here, you're trying to save a, a, a baby with a neonatal issue. And the other thing, and this would have been 80-something, early 80s, and I remember asking this one female OBGYN surgeon, and I asked her um, about life. And the best she would say, Clark, was, well, you have to ask about the quality of life. Mm. That was the first I'd ever heard that expression. Wow. And I thought, well, who are we to say what's quality of life? And if you remember, of course, how shall we then live when Francis Schaeffer's got half a dozen or more disabled people around a campfire on a beach mm. asking them, are you glad you're alive? Yeah. And of course they all were. And it was like, okay, who determined that when they didn't have a voice, you could kill them. Mm. But as an adult down syndrome or whatever, that they're happy to be alive. Yes. And it, somewhere in the conscience of our country, we lost what you just articulated that, you know, even if you dispute that we're made in the image of God, 
there is the unique creature called the human being that's above all other created things. Yes. And it should cause us to pause and say, wait a minute, before we you know, tear this child from the womb. Well, what I'm struck by, Michael, is that it's so great that you were there to be with that couple you know, in that time of grief and, you know, that they were not alone. And back then, I don't know if they had uh, what we have today in hospitals, which is perinatal palliative care unit and system and plan where um, instead of encouraging parents to abort a late-term pregnancy, a palliative care team can come around those parents Mm -hmm. and provide a compassionate, holistic medical and spiritual uh, care for them so that even if the child is is destined to die shortly after birth, a care team can come around them. And those parents that have gone through that process and have had a child who died within minutes or hours of birth testified that they were so glad that they had that treatment and 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 not you know uh, had not a, had a, a late term abortion yeah we had uh, not not long ago a family with a similar situation and i was humbled and privileged to officiate the service of this baby and a number of people came to christ mm. through the very short life of this child and you you just yes. kind of you know okay lord <laughs> You're God and I'm not, so I'm, mm. I'm very glad of that. But yes. you speak on this, you write on it, obviously. it's You've committed your life to it, especially your life's work. What do you encounter from the average church-going person, or perhaps even on those who are pro-abortion, the, sort of the common threads that you hear thrown back at you, Clark, on why abortion should be free and accessible and it's a woman's right to choose and so forth? Well, uh, my wife and I attend an, uh, a great church in the southwest suburbs where uh, the members and, and, and the leadership of the church don't hold those views. But I do, you know, sure. I don't hold pro-abortion views. But I do, I do encounter that, you know, in my debates at law schools and, and so forth. And quality of life is certainly an issue. Autonomy is, I think, the leading issue. Abortion isn't about health care. It's not about equality. It doesn't serve women's health. It doesn't serve women's equality. The data is clear on that. I think the driving issue is autonomy. And yet it's a deceptive autonomy in the sense that the majority of women who have abortions uh, felt coercion, pressure, maybe it was subtle pressure, uh, you know, I'll pay for your abortion. I'll be with you in your abortion. But a majority of women, as I told a congressional committee just a couple of months ago, testify and witness that they weren't completely free. They didn't do it completely anonymously. They were pressured by the boyfriend, by a trafficker, by even by parents. So uh, this, this, even the notion of autonomy, which I think drives most abortions, is a, is a false sense of autonomy. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because in your book, you also talk about some of the mental health ramifications. Mm, yes. Um, and again, as a pastor, it's only anecdotal, but uh, we just we just had Mother's Day recently, and I have this, I mean, I've learned, it's not my first rodeo, I acknowledged in a room, you know, if there's a thousand people there, that 
25 percent of those women may well have had an abortion. Mm. Uh, and so I acknowledge some of you are here today and it's conflicting. And you hear us Christians talk about pro-life and mm. we talk about no sin is uh, unforgivable. We talk about the grief and the number of women over the years who have come to me privately or come to Cindy and me and said, I had three abortions before I came to Christ. I, mm. It was, you know, I didn't know anything differently. And now, of course, when they learn, they come to Christ perhaps, and they learn about life and to show compassion to those people, because you're right, they will, to a woman, they would say a boyfriend, their parents disowned yes. them if they didn't, if they mm. carried the child, they're on their mm. own. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, you know, all, a lot of resources out there, but you don't know that if you're a teenage girl and you find out your boyfriend is gone and you're pregnant and it's your problem. And unfortunately, you know, this is one reason the assist pregnancy centers are so helpful because yes. they do come along and do a lot of unsung hero work to help people say, okay, you don't have to keep the baby, mm. but let's see the human <laughs> being. Let's see that baby come to life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, three, three of our four kids are adopted. Mm. So this is very close to Cindy and my life is that, yes. you know, those women chose not to abort their children. Mm. Pregnancy resource centers are on the front lines after Dobbs, and they are, uh, you know, a critical uh, yes. part of the cause for life in America, and they're going to be so essential, and we have to support them and defend them uh, in the years ahead. In the wake of the Dobbs decision, it's going to be critical for the uh, Christians, uh, pro-life Americans, to uh, be on the side of women and recognize that abortion is not just about babies. We need to educate Americans on how abortion harms women and culture and society. And I've been telling people that the number one primer on the abortion issue after Dobbs is, is written by Anderson, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis called Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing published last year. And what's what's great about that book is are, are two things, really. First, they make a broad argument on how abortion harms so much of American society, not only kills babies, but harms women and harms society, harms medicine, harms culture. But it's also up to date with a lot of empirical data and medical studies and so forth. And uh, I highly recommend uh, their book. Probably going to get this wrong, but I think it was Dr. Joel McElhaney who told me um, that the incidence of women who had abortion and further complications medically, particularly, there's some suggested link about breast cancer. Have you heard about this? Oh, absolutely. Um, there are numerous long-term studies, and I cite them in, in abuse of discretion, that find that the, after abortion, there is an increased risk of preterm birth an increased risk of breast cancer, and an increased risk of mental trauma. And uh, we're talking about uh, dozens of international studies on women from Europe, Egypt, Scandinavia, finding these risks. And women are not fully informed about abortion if they don't know about this medical data. And that's got to be part of our public education as well. When uh, and of course a lot of a lot of men and women become you know spokespersons for uh, the post Dobbs. I heard one I won't name a while back. It was all 
lathered up about, you know, the fight's only begun. Mm -hmm. And I read something recently in one of the journals, it might have been Wall Street, about Planned Parenthood's current move to overturn some things. So what's your, I mean, since your last chapter here was what happens post-Roe, what are we facing now in the light of the opposition? And and where do you see the legal challenges coming from the pro-death culture? Well, we have to be working through public education. We have to be working through culture with pregnancy resource centers. We also need to be working in in elections and in state capitals and public policy. I mean, on, on June 24th of 2022, last year, when the Dobbs decision came out, the thing that I was most concerned about on that day was our pro-life public officials, our our uh, governors and state attorney generals, are they going to stand up and say, our law, this is our law on the books, and we're going to enforce it. And I was gratified when so many state governors and attorney generals stood up and said, this is the law we have on the books. We are going to enforce these abortion limits. And many states also said, you know, we're going to help women too. We're going to fund uh, alternatives. We're going to fund resources for women. But since then, of course, the, the politics has been heated and it's going to continue to be heated. I'm, I'm concerned about ballot initiatives, kind of like direct democracy, where pro-abortion activists put ballot initiatives uh, on the, uh, you know, in the November elections on the ballot in Michigan uh, or in other states, Vermont, California, that would basically uh, take the issue back from the people uh, and enshrine an unlimited right to abortion in the state constitution. And these ballot initiatives have been deceptively written. And even in a pro-life state, they could be put on the ballot. They're trying now in Ohio for November 2023, this coming November, to enshrine an unlimited right to abortion that instead of going through the state legislative and government process, they are bypassing that and going in kind of a means of direct democracy straight to the people, you know, yay or nay, Um, And in some states, 51 percent of the people could vote for an unlimited right to abortion in the state constitution uh, by sidelining the people, sidelining their voice, sidelining state government and representative government. So we have to be concerned about those. But I also think that, you know, uh, uh, we need to understand that we don't often get the ideal in law or policy or politics. We sometimes have to make difficult decisions between two difficult choices that are imposed upon us. You know, we don't get to vote for, you know, the ideal statesperson every day. Our choices are constrained by the electoral system. And sometimes we we may have to vote against the worst. Who's the worst of these two candidates? That's a difficult decision. But that is a responsibility we have to discern what the politics and the issues are, and who who's the better of the two of maybe two not ideal candidates? You're far more diplomatic than me. <laughs> I simply say, look at policy and look at the cabinet, because no matter what office, that individual, if they're going to line up right or left, that tells you something. Then look at the, the men and women with whom they surround themselves. And uh, even in our last president uh, before Biden, I mean, the vitriol you know, um, we could say he didn't help himself much, but at the end of the day, he had people around him that were ardently pro-life, ardently conservative, and not to mention some conservative policies. But all that to say, 
yeah, am I going to vote? We say the lesser of two evils, but at the end of the day, it's, well, what's the platform? Mm-hmm. And even though this imperfect system and not all people that would call themselves conservative are necessarily pro-life. I mean, we, we see uh, Republican uh, pundits right now saying you've got to move away from this, you know, this issue. You can't talk about pro-life if you want to win the next election. I'm going, I don't know who's talking in your earpiece, but, uh, you know, you need to listen to that God values the human life. Yes. And that's a principle on which if you can't run, uh, there's a greater problem. But anyway, I'm, I'm pontificating. No, um, not, not at all. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, if anybody says, why is life so important or, or why do you put such a priority on it? Go back to the Declaration of Independence, the founding document of America. That itself identifies a right to life as a priority. So that's our founding document, and it identifies life as critical. And our law identifies life as critical. The Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs cites all the laws passed by the states over the years that protected life. So mm-hmm. it's, it can't be a, a secondary issue. It's, it's the first of all, uh, all rights. If you can't have the right to life, there's uh, all other rights depend upon it. I often find, too, the argument from the pro-abortion side of things, the, the vitriol, the hatred, the anger, the animus. I mean, you see these students. I don't know about you, but I, I have great hope when you have all these young people who own pro-life initiatives today. And, and granted, there's a broad spectrum of you know Catholic, evangelical, whatever, mm-hmm. but I'm glad they're fighting for an important issue. And yes. when I see the, uh, the way they conduct themselves— Vis-a-vis the way the left goes after them, the pro-death culture goes at them. Like, if you're angry and you're yelling and screaming, it's because you don't have an argument, Mm. you don't know your issues, or they're so deeply hurt, Clark, Mm -hmm. that they can't for a moment uh, think about, that's killing a baby. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I wrote a published an article uh, uh, last month or so in Public Discourse, that was entitled, uh, A Culture of Life Starts with Turning the Other Cheek. Mm. And I'm glad you see that witness, that nonviolent, peaceful witness, because if we're going to represent a culture of life and talk about a culture of life and stand for a culture of life, we have to have that nonviolent, peace, peaceful witness. Well, I think it's Carol Kent's story. She had uh, a couple, maybe three abortion clinics in Texas if memory serves, and it was her accountant mm. that just was kind and and mm. loved her and uh, talked to her about the Lord. <laughs> it, again, I may have yes. this—the older I get, everything runs together. <laughs> but And I think I heard her tell this story more than once, that this kind of you know uh, nerdy guy who did her books prayed for her, mm. loved her. She came to Christ. It was this aha moment. And then, of course, she revealed a lot of the— the underbelly of the abortion industry. We don't understand the amount of money, which, of course, is the primary motivation for these clinics. But Yeah, that's uh, a great great example. Uh, I mean, if you stand for a culture of life, you need to make it attractive to people. Yeah. By by your own witness. And again, some of the the most vitriolic people I've encountered, I try to look at them as, you know, they've been hurt Uh, somewhere in their past, somewhere in their uh, history. Someone hurt them deeply, maybe even as a very young child. And that anger puts others at bay. And if you're triggered by it, you're going to lose. But if you're able to just step back and uh, 
My friend Dennis Rainey taught me years ago. He says, never hold the, the conflict over your heart. Mm-hmm. Always move it over to one side mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. look at the issue, Amen. not the person. And that's mm-hmm. it's a good uh, a good piece of advice. Okay, in the last couple of minutes, give us some action points. Okay, I'm a person, I'm pro-life. Yeah, I like, you know, I want to help women out. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna become an attorney. What do I do, Clark? Help out the, the person, quote, in the pew, close quote, who, who cares but doesn't know where to begin. Well, obviously, uh, I, think, I think we all need to be praying specifically and consistently and daily for pro-life leaders, for pregnancy care centers, for those who are on the front lines, for women who are maybe feeling pressured into an abortion. I think every church should adopt a pregnancy resource center and support and staff and help pregnancy resource centers, you know, in every town and city across the country. We need to be informed about what's happening in our state capital, where the action is happening now in the states. And we need to be informed about the elections. And we have to start, you know, uh, you know, an hour before an hour before we go into the voting booth, we need to be uh, studying candidates uh, uh, in the months before every election. Um, we need to have practical wisdom. Uh, you know, the Bible, the book of Proverbs, uh, the life of Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah and Esther, I see those four heroes as exemplifying practical wisdom. And of course, Solomon emphasized it in the book of Proverbs. Practical wisdom means discerning what the problem is, deliberating about a solution, making a decision, and then acting upon it. We need to be, we need to prize prudence as a as an exemplary virtue that we need to embody in our life. It's it's because of that that um, we need to be focused in, in prayer. Uh, focused in in helping women um, through pregnancy resource centers, being involved in our state capitals or in what's going on, at least informed, and being active in elections and choosing wisely. As you said, it it's both the policies that someone supports and their character. The two go together and are inextricably intertwined, really. Well, we want you to read Clark Forsyth's books. We'll have all the information in the show notes. The Abuse of Discretion is the most current one. Are you are you going to write a follow-up or at least a um, perhaps a brief on post-Dobbs? Well, I'm, all, I'm always writing and publishing on these issues, yes. But, um, you know, the, the, the thing I'd like to get done before I retire is that there is no legal textbook in the United States for law students and lawyers uh, on law and bioethics from a from a human rights standpoint, from a sanctity of life standpoint. Everything on the market is from a utilitarian standpoint. And God willing, before I retire, I hope to publish a a textbook on law and bioethics from a sanctity of human life standpoint. But otherwise, I'm I'm always writing and publishing. And you can see my publications and writings at at our website, Americans United for Life, uh, aul.org. Again, all the information will be in the show notes because we know you can't always catch it when we're, we're talking about something on the podcast. Clark, it's been a privilege to have you. God bless you for your labors. And, uh, you know, for our friends and listeners, if you know a law student, you know, a young man or woman who's thinking about going into law, this would be a great gift to give them for their college graduation or entering, entering 
probably wait till they get out of law school because they won't have time while they're in law school. But to give them a couple of really good resources because you never know how God might use a conversation with Clark to provoke someone just like it used uh, C. Everett Coop and Francis Shaper's yeah. uh, efforts to move many people into bioethics, into policy, into law, and even medicine uh, because someone had the uh, ability to put things in order for the rest of us who don't always think in these realms. So, Clark, thanks for your work and your ministry. God bless you and appreciate you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for your work. God bless. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.